Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. The gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Morning, everyone, and welcome. It's a delight to have all of you, even all of you way back there in the narthex. It's great to have you as well. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May we hide it deeply in our heart that we might know you, love you, and follow you all the days of our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I told you last Sunday that Alyssa and I dropped off our second son last Saturday at UT for his freshman year. And by the time that we arrived home a few hours later, our third son had already moved into his room. And I, I thought, as for man, his days are like grass, the flower of the field, so he flourishes. Wind passes over, it is no more, and acknowledges its place no longer. It's true. Some changes come very quickly in our world, but some don't. Many don't, in fact, not according to Jesus's parables, including those two today. Many of Jesus's parables utilize agrarian images and images from agrarian life, things like seeds and sheep and soil. And it puts us at a disadvantage because we're not agrarian people and we're not familiar with this way of life. We're not even an industrial people anymore. We're increasingly a technological people who don't use tools very much. Instead, we mostly use devices, and devices are very different. Andy Crouch, who's a Christian author and speaker, he distinguishes between tools and devices, saying that tools are things that humans have always had. He calls them cultural universals, that these things that extend human capacity in some ways, but also require a certain amount of skill and effort and attention and commitment in order to derive the benefits from them. But devices are very different. They oftentimes give us what tools do, but without requiring any of the skill or effort. And he calls this shift, Crouch does, a shift to easy everywhere, which is the dream of the technological world to make every aspect of our life fast, simple, easy, as easy as possible, and to some degree magical. Long time ago, 1962, Arthur C. Clarke famously said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And now we live in a magical world. That third son of mine who just erased our second son's memory from our house in a matter of hours, he, when he was a toddler, he would walk up to our TV when it was off and do this as a little boy, because that's the way some of you young people are saying, well, why would he do that? Because back then, that's how you turned Apple devices on. And we all use devices more than we use tools now, most of us. And so what is that doing to us? What is it doing to our lives and to our relationships, to our understanding of who God is and how he works in the world? How does God work in us and in the world? Or to put it in the language of this parable, how does the kingdom of heaven come? 
I want to offer you four descriptors this morning of how God works in this world. First descriptor, gently. If you look at the very first verse in our gospel text, it says another parable he put before them. That's the most literal reading of that phrase. It's the second time that Matthew has used that phrase in chapter 13. In chapter 13, Jesus tells the parable that I've been preaching on the last two weeks, the parable of the sower. And then he tells the parable of the weeds and then these two parables. And the parable of the sower or soils, it's, it's foundational. It's paradigmatic for who God is and how he works in this world and what we're like. God is like a farmer who goes out and sows seeds into people's hearts. And we're like soil. We don't have inherent life within us, but we were created to receive life from outside of us, planted deeply within us and to become a part of us. That is the paradigm. And then he tells these three additional parables. And to introduce them, we read, and another parable he put before them, and another parable he put before them, and another parable he put before them. Do you hear the rhythm? One commentator said it sounds like the tireless lapping of waves upon the shore. And that is how God reaches out to us. Tirelessly, but gently, continually, not incessantly, not loud and screaming and ranting, not belittling and shaming, which is so often the way of communication in our world, steadily rather, and gently. Do you notice the verb? It's just such an ordinary verb. He put before them another parable could be translated propose or offer or even spread. He spread another parable before them, like someone spreading a meal on a table for a hungry person, which reminds me, I can't help but say that and think of one of my favorite quotes from literature that I've read to you many times before from Marilyn Robinson's novel, Home. She writes, how to announce the return of comfort and well-being except by cooking something fragrant. This is what their mother always did. After every calamity of any significance, she would fill the atmosphere of the house with the smell of cinnamon rolls or brownies or chicken and dumplings. And it would mean this house has a soul that loves us all, no matter what. It would mean peace for those who had fought. It would mean amnesty if there had been trouble. It had meant you can come home to dinner right now and no one will say anything to bother you unless you've forgotten to wash your hands. And their father would offer the grace inevitable with minor variations, thanking the Lord for all the wonderful faces he saw around the table. I wonder if you imagine that that's what God's kingdom is like. I wonder if you have experienced that in the church, generally, or even in this church. The adult children in this novel, their names are Glory and Jack, and Glory isn't glorious. She's lonely and bitter. She's bitter because she has to leave her life and come home to help her ailing father. And she's lonely because she had an affair with a married man who promised to leave his wife, which of course he never did. And Jack is an alcoholic. He's been homeless or in jail ever since he left home. And what does God do with people like that? With failures, with like people like that, with fools like that, or fools or failures like us? What does he have to say? And how does he say it? Another parable, another parable, another parable. There's a meekness to it. Meekness is power under the control of love for others. And meekness, there's a meekness to the kingdom of God and to Jesus and to his parables. Parables are inherently meek. Stories or images from ordinary, everyday life. But ones filled with power that eventually explode with truth and with beauty and with meaning and with grace. So God is meek in himself 
but also in his communication, just so different than our world. Our world isn't meek or gentle with its communication. Neither is it subtle, which is the second descriptor, subtle. What connects these two parables is the the images that they have and the smallness of them. Both grain and leaven are small, so small that they're hidden and unseen and thus oftentimes unappreciated for the power that they have within them. Do you know how small a mustard seed is? It's so small that 750 mustard seeds equal one gram. Jesus couldn't have chosen a smaller seed. Uh, yet it grows larger than all the plants of the tree. So eventually the life and the transformative power within it is seen, but not initially, especially it's hidden. And leaven too. Hide is the verb that Jesus uses here in this second parable, which I find kind of odd. I don't, I don't really cook much. Uh, I, I'm pretty good with waffles. If my wife was here, she'd say, yeah, ego waffles or something along those lines. I'm not, I don't cook much, but I do know that's an odd verb. You, you add ingredients and in you mix them and you don't hide them. But I think this verb's being used to emphasize what the leaven points us to and the hiddenness of what it points us to, which is the kingdom of God, his heavenly presence here, his rule here in our lives and in the world. There's always a hiddenness to it, especially as it begins. So what is it that we hide? Oftentimes we hide things we're ashamed of, good or bad, especially bad things, bad, broken things, things that we know aren't good or doing damage to us or to others around us. And as a side note, let me just say what Jesus says in another place in Luke 12, which is nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that won't be known. Because some of you are hiding things like that. And you need to know that whatever bad or broken thing that you're hiding, it is coming out. It will be revealed. And so better you bring it out sooner rather than later. Better for you, better for others around you. So bring it out into the light now. But we also hide things that we're ashamed of that aren't bad and broken, but actually good and beautiful things out of shame or fear. Even things like the Lord's work in our life or our faith. Previous, in, in previous chapters in Matthew 5, Jesus famously says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He's implicitly saying, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of me. Don't be ashamed of of your faith in me or the unique life that following after me demands and entails. Do not be afraid of the rejection or the opposition or the difficulty that will come. You are a city set on a hill. You've been to Zilker Park at night lately? You can't not see the city so brightly shining there. That is what our lives as Christians are meant to be like. We not only hide things good or bad, that we're ashamed of. We also hide things that are precious to us, valuable to us. We don't only hide them, we seek them. The very next parable in Matthew 13, which we didn't read, it's one of the shortest. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys this field. Friends, God hides himself in this world. And he does so because he wants us to see him and even seek him for what he is, which is the most precious and valuable treasure there is with value beyond this world and be willing to give up whatever it may be that we have to give up in order to find him and to lay hold of him. But he also hides himself in order that we might find him in subtle ways 
ways that are consistent with how he reveals himself in this world, which is typically in quite ordinary, undramatic, and unremarkable ways. Like the opening of a book to read. He's placed his word within a book that we simply open and read in order to hear from him. How, how ordinary, how unremarkable. It's not like a Taylor Swift concert. Are y'all keeping up with Taylor Swift at this point? It is a cultural phenomenon that is happening. CNN predicted last week that ticket sales alone could gross $2.2 billion in North America. The average price for a ticket is $455, and people are paying far more from that. The average attendance at her concerts are 75,000 people. She did seven nights in a row in LA alone, 44 songs per performance, three hours and 15 minutes. I didn't go. I haven't gone. I'm Swifty so much, but I've seen the videos and I've seen the massive stage, the amazing light show and the dancers, teenage girls weeping with joy everywhere all over. It's very different than opening a book. Not wrong, just different. Quite spectacular, but not ordinary. And what we do here week after week is very ordinary. We kneel down in silence and talk to God about our lives, about our sin, our need for forgiveness. Then we stand up to sing together. No flashing lights, no dancers. I don't know what David Lutz has in store for us, but I don't think we're going to have like the David Lutz liturgical dancers or anything. Uh, And then we also walk forward week in, week out to eat a meal, a very simple meal, bread and wine, very small portions. My boys are, they're older now, but they would often say when they were younger, why do we have to do the same thing at church every week? Why do we have to say the same thing? We do not presume to come to your presence, O Lord, trusting in your own righteousness, but in your man, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they would go on to quote the whole liturgy and go on to quote and articulate the gospel as contained within the liturgy. And I would just smile and sit there and say, I don't know why we do this. Why do you think we do this? So friends, the most subtle, ordinary, unremarkable, often unnoticed things are that which is working most significantly upon us and bringing about the most lasting change. So don't forget the second soil from the parable of the sower. One word is used twice about that soil, which is called shallow soil. We could just Describe it dramatic soil. And it's this person who immediately hears the word of God and receives it with joy, but then also immediately, one word used twice, falls away when things become difficult or just not spectacular. So dramatic Damascus Road experiences or mountaintop transfiguration experiences, they can boost your faith. They can be a catalyst to your faith. But the dramatic doesn't grow deep roots, spiritual roots, ordinary things, subtle, everyday, unremarkable things do, like opening up a book to read and to hear from God, or kneeling down week after week in silence, or joining a small group, or serving in some unseen, unspectacular, behind-the-scenes sort of way. There's lasting change in that. It's subtle. Third description. God is not only gentle and subtle, he's also patient. You'll notice that with both these parables, time passes. A seed becomes a tree, a large tree. Uh, In fact, a mustard seed, given particular conditions, can grow to 20 feet, 30 feet even in height with a crown that's twice as wide as that, but it takes time. And so too does leaven take time, especially with the amount of bread that Jesus is talking about here. Three measures of flour is 39 liters. I didn't do the math. I just read it. 39 liters produces a lot of bread. 
One commentator said enough bread to feed 40 people for multiple days. So now a mustard seed's somewhat fast growing and baking bread isn't building a cathedral. It takes years. You know how long it took to build Notre Dame? 200 years and just a few hours to burn it down, which is also an illustration for our lives. 20 years to rebuild it. But even though these things aren't like building a cathedral, they do take time. And that's the point. God takes time with us in changing us. And by the way, in enduring us as he changes us. And don't miss the end goal of this patient work. It's the last word in these two parables. And it's somewhat obscured in the English, but the last word is this Greek word halon, means all. It's the second to last word in, in our English, which kind of obscures the emphasis, but it's this word halon. It's one of the root words that make up the word holocaust. A holocaust all, holocaustus meaning to burn. It's a biblical word for the Old Testament sacrifices that were entirely burned up in their offering to God. And it makes the point that that is what God is after. All of us individually, all of us corporately, all of the world culturally to be completely leavened or filled with his presence and his rule and his life and his love. That is his goal. And he is patient in pursuing it. So are you patient in anything? Are you patient with others in seeking, praying, hoping for the life change that you know that, that they need, or even with yourself? Imagine if you would become patient. Imagine what that would do to your relationships. You stop beating people up under the expectation, the weight of your expectations for them or yourself. What would that be like? You remember the second soil. It's the shallow soil. It's the person who changes fast. Immediately they change and immediately they change. The immediacy of change with this type of person is always happening. So there's no stability. They're, they're slow and patient with nothing. And so they're anxious about everything. Real change, deep and abiding change, Holon type of change. It takes time. It takes a lifetime, in fact. I had the privilege several weeks ago, maybe a month ago or so now, presiding at the funeral for one of our All Saints musicians. His name is Brad Hauser. I don't know that many of you knew him. He didn't have too many friends here, but he's well known and beloved by our musicians as well as the Austin music community, which made for a really interesting funeral here. I've never preached or presided to so many people wearing sunglasses. It made me feel really cool up here doing so. But Brad, he started playing for us during COVID when most of the musicians lost their normal gigs. He's a very talented bass player, very accomplished. In fact, he was a part of the 80s, 90s band, the New Bohemians. Do you know this band? Some of you if you're my age, you probably do. She, they played with Edie Brickell. If you were in high school or college in the 90s like me, you know their music, especially the song, What I Am. You know the opening line, I'm not aware of too many things. I know what I know, if you know what I mean. The song goes on and says, philosophy is the talk on a cereal box. Religion is the smile on a dog. Not very complimentary, but from what I've learned, these words were pretty representative of Brad for most his life. He, he grew up in the church. He grew up as a Christian, but he left the faith not long after high school, but God did not leave Brad behind. In fact, it wasn't obvious. It was quite subtle, but God was being patient with Brad and working in his life, especially once he started playing here at All Saints. And on Christmas morning this last year, he, he rushed into the kitchen here behind our interim sanctuary and found David Lutz and rushed up to David and said, David, you have to pray for me right now. 
And David was just drinking coffee, trying to wake up from the night before playing multiple Christmas evening services. But they prayed and David prayed for him and Brad prayed. And then when the musicians went down to take the Eucharist that Sunday morning on Christmas day, Brad went with them because the Lord had been working in his life so patiently over years to bring Brad back to faith and back to himself. And not only the Lord, but also Brad's mom. We found out that even though Brad's mother died just a few months before Brad died, his high school friends told us at his funeral that she had been praying for him all these years since he left the faith all the way back in high school. And so how amazing that the Lord resurrected Brad's faith a few months before she died so that she could see the patience of God turn into the decisiveness of God, which is the the fourth and final descriptor I have for you. God is decisive with us. This is where I close. There is a phrase in these two parables, which is repeated. It's also a little obscure in English, but in the original language, it's this, which having taken. Verse 31 says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which having taken a man planted. And verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which having taken a woman hid. And in both parables, everything is predicated. Everything that happens is predicated upon these decisive acts. So why are you here this morning? Why are you a Christian? Why are you curious about Jesus if you're not a Christian or considering becoming a Christian? I'll tell you why. And that is because God has taken you and is planting you and hiding you in himself and in our faith. I hope you see that. I hope you believe that. I hope you dare to believe that the unfolding of your life and everything in it is predicated upon God's decisive acts and work in your life, that he wants you that much and that he loves you that much, that he loves you enough to be gentle with you and subtle with you and patient with you, but also eventually very decisive with you. So why are you in the family you're a part of? Why are you married to the spouse that you have? Why do you live in the neighborhood where you live or work where you live? College students, why do you have the roommates that you have? It is not coincidence. It is not act by accident. It's not by chance. It is very intentional. It is divinely decisive. God has worked in your life. If you are a Christian, God has given you the gift of faith and revealed himself to you in and through Jesus so that we together and you individually even might grow into what this seed and this leaven grow into, which is a sheltering tree and a nourishing loaf for the world. Because friends, this is the gospel. And that is that God, the father took God, the son and God, the son willingly was taken and was planted in our broken and fallen and sinful world in our very flesh. And then he was planted even further into this world by being planted in and buried in death itself, like a seed planted into the ground in order to die so that through its death, it might release the life-giving transformative work into where it is planted. That is what Jesus has done for us dying on the cross, but being raised from that death in order to release his life into our lives and to change us by his spirit, to change us gently, subtly, patiently, decisively, and wholly and completely. In fact, that's what Ephesians 4 and 5 is about. It's about total change, change in every aspect of our life, change in our emotions, 
change in our work and our speech, our relationships, so that we actually become kind to one another and tenderhearted and a people of forgiveness, forgiving one another because God in Christ has forgiven us. It means we can become meek. We can become gentle. We can become patient. We can become decisive. So are you decisive? Are you decisive about the Lord himself? He is decisive about you. He is committed to you. He is at work in you, even though you might not see it and fully understand it. It may be small. It may be unseen. It may be hidden right now, but it's real and it's growing. You are like leaven. You are like leaven in the world. So go out into the world as the very leaven of Christ in order to shape and influence and form the place where the Lord has planted you and hidden you into a place that tastes of him and tastes of heaven and tastes of his kingdom. You are the leaven of Christ for the world. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, all of that which we are to behold and hear in your word, and that you would plant your word deeply in us, that we might become the people of God that you would have for us to be in this world, not only for our own sakes, for we truly need it, but also for the sake of our neighbors whom we love and for whom Jesus also came. We pray this in his name. Amen.